Hello everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History at Time. I'm recording this from the History Hit Bunker, news just in, that whilst a Russian fleet is on manoeuvres off the east coast of England, the heir to the throne and the First Lord of the Treasury, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, have both got this pandemic disease. Ah, that's a sentence I never thought I'd be speaking, even just a few weeks ago. But there we are. On the podcast this episode, we've got Omid Jalili. He's a wonderful actor, he's a comedian, and he's a writer too. And uh, I'm going to talk to him about his new show, in which he plays about a million different characters himself. And it's all about 19th century Persia, based on a true story. I talked to him about his fascination with history. So many creative people, so many poets, directors, comedians that we've had on the podcast just are obsessed with history. It's great to see their fellow travellers, and uh, Omid is definitely one of them. Lovely, lovely man. Got to reminisce a little bit about him playing the part of a slave trader in Gladiator. Little did I imagine when I watched Gladiator for the first time as a first-year undergrad student in an empty cinema in Oxford, that one day I'd be chatting away to one of the actors in there about the experience. So it's, as ever, such an honour to be on this podcast and talk to these wonderful people. It's also an honour to be involved in History Hit TV. It's been strange times because in, in these times of isolation, these times of homeschooling, we've had a huge number of people signing up to History Hit TV. Thank you very much for that. It's all come as a bit of a shock. We're slightly overwhelmed, actually, but we're going to do our best to make sure that we do try and meet the demand for teaching aids, supporting teachers and parents. They try and keep their kids enthused and, and learning through these really difficult times. We're sort of gearing up. <laughs> we're gearing up. You can get history hit tv for free for a month and then another month for just one pound euro or dollar so it's basically just one pound just for the first two months which should hopefully hopefully see us through this crisis if you use the code pod one pod one when you check out so please go and do that there are hundreds of history documentaries on there we've made we've lined them up by educational tiers so you should be able to see if you'll if you want to get it for your kids you'll be able to hopefully see relevant content for the ages and the stages that they're at and the topics as well so thank you thank you very much lastly i'm very excited that i've got my big collaboration with the world's biggest history youtube channel timeline they're they're a fantastic youtube channel they have lots of documentaries on there for free and we are now doing regular slots on there talking to some of the world's best historians basically doing history hit lives on there so please go to timeline on youtube and check out the history hit lives as well in the meantime, everyone, at the end of this week of isolation, I hope we're not all going too crazy at home. I hope things are going well. I hope that the vast majority of people listening to this will, will avoid getting sick. We've had a couple of people on the team get sick. Thankfully, they're looking like they've all recovered really well. And because we stood the team down and isolated them all quite a long time ago, we've played our small part. History Hits played its small part in, in making sure that the disease hasn't spread. For those few of you who are in the middle of it, I hope you get well and I hope you find that listening to History Hit enables you to get to sleep quicker. I'm sure it does. Enjoy Ahmed, everyone. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is honour. It's an honour to have comedy royalty here. I think you're actually. I think you're my you're my first gladiator veteran as well, which is exciting. Yeah, gladiator. When I famously had my nether regions grabbed by Oliver Reed, he grabbed your balls. He grabbed my balls. Yes, and he said to me, "Are you a method actor?" I don't know if I've told you that there's a there's a story behind that where 
he said to me, oh, you method actor? And I said, yeah, because in the original script, he's supposed to punch me. Okay. And we had a little conflab, and Ridley Scott always had this cigar. He said, we're going to cut the um, punch. We want him to grab you. Are you all right with that? And I said, whatever you want, Mr. Scott, whatever. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm just glad then, to be here, buddy. And, he, and Oliver Reed said, we'll, we'll deal with it. And he goes, are you method actor? And I said, I didn't know what it meant. I went, like, yeah. And he goes, do you mind if I really grab you? I said, just, just, I said grab me. He goes, no, but you, can I go under the tunic? And I said, what do you mean go under the tunic? He goes, just lift up. And I go under the tunic, make it more realistic. And I said, how would that work? Why, why would you do that? Because no, the camera won't see it. We'll do a, a close-up afterwards. But if you allow me to just come up to me, lift up your tunic, I go under, I grab you, and then you, we'll do the scene up here. Gay giraffes. Yeah, it was all that gay giraffe stuff. And then um, and I did the rehearsal. And I said, is this working? And then Ridley Scott was saying, I didn't know there was all a trick they were playing on me. And um, he grabbed me, and then we, then we're ready for a take. And he goes, you're right, lift it up. So I come up, I'd say, I said, Proxima, my old friend, lift up the tunic. <laughs> His hand would go in, and he'd hold me, and we'd do the scene, and um, they shouted, cut, after the first thing. And then, usually they'd have a cup of tea, but he carried on holding me in between the takes. And just, oh my so God. I held it, and I just um, <laughs> just asked him, just try to be natural. I said, are you enjoying the hotel? He said, this is fine. And then by take three or four, he started moving me around, and I just thought, is this a wind-up? And it was. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in those days, this is like, I could have, like, taken them... To court for some kind of abuse, but I just thought this was all kind of like male bonding. Lads on tour. Yeah, that's what I thought because they all knew I was a bit scared of him as well. I kind of stayed in my room away from when they were all like drinking at night. I just stayed in my room quietly because he was a real rabble rouser. Honestly, I was a bit scared of him. But uh, anyway, sorry, gladiator. Yes, you like lots of you like lots of comedians. History is a valuable history is a big reservoir for you guys. History's huge for us, yeah. We, we, t- we take history very, very seriously. The accuracy of, of history, and we talk about a lot of stand-up routines are about what's real, what's not, so yeah. Isn't that, yeah, because you know, I was watching one about the sort of, re- re- you know, returning stolen goods to people that are in the British Museum the other day, and your, and your current, your, the one you're touring at the moment is about, mil- how do we, I never know how to pronounce that, millenarianism? Um, millennial, millennial expectation for yeah, the return yeah. of Christ around yeah. eighteen, between eighteen forty-three and eighteen forty-five. All kinds did, of madness was going on. How did you uh, land on that particular? Well, I'm a Baha'i, and the, the, and the Baha'i faith started around this particular period of time. But I was very interested, from a historical point of view, that this was something that a lot of people were expecting. There was the, there was the Millerite, the, the, the Millerites, um, who were now the Seventh Day Adventists. There was a and it wasn't just that, it was Christians. I even read that there were kind of Buddhists and Chinese people were like, that the Messiah will come in the West. So they were going from like East to West and all seemed to be congregating in Persia at that time. Whilst at the same time, people were expecting Christ to come on a cloud in the West. And people would look, you know, like the Monty Python sketch, it goes, well, same again tomorrow and all that kind of stuff. So I just was fascinated that actually there was this global fever for this expectation, for some kind of momentous thing to happen. And what the play is saying, that something did actually happen, and it's up to people to decide what it was, because it was so tumultuous. 20,000 people killed, there's a lot of executions and craziness, and there were prophet figures, and there were people dying for a noble cause. So I wanted to really look into it and see if there's a great one-man show that we can do about it because it's, it's, it's not even um, a forgotten period of history because it's all recorded in British history. Um, it's all recorded in the Times newspaper. People were going out 
that people like Professor Edward Granville Brown, um, a lot of the um, early suffragettes were hearing these stories, or people who became suffragettes, that there was this faith talking about the equality of men and women and all that, and they got very inspired. So there was this tremendous, I suppose, um, movement and excitement and inspiration and people going backwards and forwards to the Middle East and coming back and talking about it. And um, it was just a very exciting period. So this is the, this, the play captures what was going on then. Well, it, it doesn't seem like the most obvious topic. I mean, how, what no. was it about it just that, that attracted you? Do, is, there, is, there, do you is, a, is there a modern resonance with whether it's climate or people getting nervous about things like what, or Trumpism? What, what, yes, I, th I think that the, the, this is a play I did many years ago. It was at the it end won of the lots of, It won the big award. It won lots of awards and things. And, and you know what, you, you forget about it because I, I always look back at my days as a kind of young actor as someone who just right. wanted to... Well, you're still a young actor. I'm still a young actor, young but actor. I just wanted to do fresh, original stuff. And, and it was uh, a story that I, that was, it was a story that I was raised with, and, and no one had actually put it into a dramatic, uh, um, any kind of dramatic context. And, and when we put it together, it was so well-received by people who don't know anything about the Baha'i faith. They don't know anything about this period. And, and we had a lot of scholars come along and say, yes, that's absolutely right. And, and then when we, we did it again in... Um, the British Library in 2019, just last year. And there was a bloke who saw it in 1993 and said, would you do it again? And I said, um, what's it for? He goes, this is for the bicentenary of the birth of one of these prophet figures, for the prophet figures. And he, I said, what do you remember about it? What do you remember? And he said, not much, to be honest, because I was off my head. I was uh, <laughs> on drinking drugs at the Edinburgh Festival. But he goes, I do remember that you, had, you played this executioner, and this executioner was killing people and talking about it. And I just thought, I just thought, you know, it's time the executioners had their say. Because no one, no one asked an executioner, and I thought that was very interesting. And then he said, uh, I just remember when the executioner then meets the prophet figure, and they have this moment. And there are no words between them, but then the executioner expresses it in a wicked bongo solo. I just want to see that again. So we did it again, and all these Oxford dons and all these kind of historical people came along and said, yes, what you don't know is this, and yes, that was absolutely accurate. And then somebody came along who was the great, great, great grandson of the one of the executioners that we're talking about, and he showed us a photograph. And it was a photograph that really affected me, because they're saying this particular executioner who was killing all these Barbies and Baha'is, these two people, two groups of people who'd espoused this new faith, he was killing them all, and then... An event, they've caught the photograph 10 seconds before an event that changed his life. And they emailed it to me, and I couldn't believe it, because in those days they used to kill these Barbies by um, these, these new people who professed a new faith. They used to put them in front of a cannon and blow them to pieces. So there's a photograph of a guy. And this is in Persia. This is in Persia, yeah. yeah it's in Persia. This is, the photograph is from 1849. We actually put the photograph in the show now, and there's a credits section. And... It's moments before they blow this guy up, and the executioner stood behind, as normal. You stand behind the cannon, blow this guy to pieces, and then you pick up the pieces and bring the next one. But apparently, a bit of flesh flew back somehow and hit him on the shoulder and totally affected him. I know this all sounds a bit gory, but he um, then became, uh, he espoused this faith. We understand that he, he then was executed himself. But all his generations espoused this particular faith and they totally supported this play and totally said you're absolutely right and 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 it was other 
other scholars and people see people seem to know about this particular character so since then I've had a lot of historical validation because you know you do a piece and you think should we just play around with this bit of history and then every, every time we've played around with it a little bit we've actually been proved right you know so in, in the play we also have um, a, a, a kind of tea party in, in the 1890s in the home counties where people used to talk about this and there's a character we, who was called Millicent who and her auntie's trying to marry her off to somebody. And then we said, she's, she's first heard about equality of men and women. Maybe we should make her Millicent Fawcett, who was a famous uh, suffragette. And then it was, came, people from Cambridge came along and said, absolutely right, yes. Millicent Fawcett first heard about this from people who came over talking about this crazy thing that was going on and this, this faith that was espousing equality of men. We said, you're absolutely right, that's where she first heard it. In fact, she was supposed to go she was supposed to go and meet the son of the prophet figure, but just never went. So, so any, any turn that we've done where we've tried to make it a little bit kind of, are we playing around with history, has turned out to be correct. You're like Hilary Mantel. I mean, historians are queuing up to say she's probably right. We're probably wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's <laughs> exactly. probably right about Cromwell. But does it matter? I often ask the actors and the directors I get on here, like, does it, does it matter to you that you are getting that validation from the history side? It does, it? very oh, much. Does okay. Because I, I, I want it to be accurate and I want it to be... If I, you know, even a film like Gladiator, you know, when you look back, I'm sure a lot of that is, I mean, you know it's a film when there are helicopter shots of Rome. <laughs> you can see everything. So, you know, there's, they're, they're playing around with creativity. You never get a shot like that. But, um, but a, a lot of that, I remember working on that and I remember asking Ridley Scott, so was Commodus killed? And he was saying, well, some of it is fictitious. We're playing around with it. But we want, to, we, we, it's very clear that we don't want to get nonsense from historians. So as long as we keep the basis of it based in truth, then we're okay. Because actually with the things that really happen is what are the lessons for us in, in future generations about what really happened. And is it particularly true because you're making a um, show that's about your, it's about your identity as well? Yes, it is. Because you know, I was raised in Britain. I'm a, I'm a second generation uh, Iranian, fifth generation Baha'i. Um, so my forefathers were kind of traveling troubadours they would travel around they were poets that's why we have poets in the show as well who are based in modern times it's me kind of saying this is me five generations back my family were traveling troubadours where they go around and do their poetry set up a tent and people would give them arms and money and that was it they were, that, that was, there's like passing a hat around and then they became Baha'is and then they went round after their poetry they said look we're gonna have a meeting if anyone wants to hear more about this and then they get chased out a lot of people become Baha'is, a lot of people would try and kill them. So um, poetry was something that I really wanted to have in the show as part of my heritage. Um, but also as a second generation Iranian, I always struggled being raised, you know, being raised in the 1970s as, you know, an Iranian looking kid. And I did a lot to kind of make myself look more Iranian. I was 14, I had a moustache. I was already fully developed. I had man boobs when I was like 15. And um, I just looked very dark and there weren't that many Iranian kids around. And also, it would have been okay if they thought I was a Muslim, but I wasn't a Muslim. I was part of this the Baha'i faith. It was, well, what's that? So, it was a, so there, there was always confusion around me. And I've always said I'm a minority within a minority within a minority within a minority because I'm a British, I'm not British, I'm Iranian. And even amongst the Iranians, I'm not a Muslim, I'm a Baha'i, so I'm a minority. And even in, within the Baha'i community, People thought my family were weird. 
and then even within my family, I thought they were all weird. So I'm kind of the kind of levels of cosmic kind of isolation <laughs> are, are quite deep with me. But but that's why I'm doing this one particular play is me, I suppose, struggling to uh, reclaim my identity and really say, actually, also from a historical point of view, this is this is a, a period of history which I don't think we've paid enough attention to. And the people who did pay attention to it are kind of ignoring it now. I mean, there was an amazing thing that happened where this prophet figure was, was executed, excuse me, was executed. And it was covered in the Times newspaper that it was seen as some kind of crazy miracle where in those days they didn't just kill you, they, they had to bring out like a, a, a regiment of 500 people and they were with bayonets, they'd shoot and then the, there'd be massive smoke, you'd have to wait for the smoke to clear, then you go and pick up the bodies and they've usually enmeshed into each other, been hit by so many bullets. And this particular prophet figure, the Barb was his name and he was going to be killed with someone with him. And when they shot, and before, before it happened, the leader of the regiment, who was a guy called Sam Khan, who was a Christian, went up to him and said, look, this is our job. We really don't want to do this. Is anything you can have? And he said to him, if, you're, if, you're, if your intention is sincere, it'll all be taken care of. I went, okay. And they shot. And when the smoke cleared, the barb and his, they disappeared. And there was pandemonium. They couldn't find him. They found him back in his cell finishing off a conversation with his secretary. He said, I wasn't finished yet. <laughs> it wasn't time for me to die yet. Like the prophets of God, they choose when to die. Like when Jesus is on the cross, it's not like as if they've killed Jesus. When Jesus chooses, like you can kill me now. He wasn't ready then. So then that group, that regiment left. Said, well, that's, that's our sign. We're gone. They brought in another regiment of 750 people. Now, we don't know if it, what, the, what the exact miracle was. In those days, they used to hold them up by ropes. And apparently the, the, the gunshots severed the ropes. So it could be that 500 people didn't want to do it and they just lifted up. That could be the miracle. But still, that is miraculous. kind of miraculous yeah. that they did that. Um, and this was covered in the Times newspaper. There, was some, there were people. Th this story, by the way, that we talk about in the show was in the newspapers all the time around 1850s. In fact, I, I did the show in Ireland and, and, a, and a historian said, if you look at the Roscommon Times, people used to sit down at, you know, for breakfast and say, now what's going on in Persia now in the 1850s? What's happened to the Bab? Has he been killed yet? So it was, it was uh, serialized and people were talking about it. But it's interesting, nobody has really, no films been made about it, no one. So I'm hoping to start interest with this and, they, and get maybe proper filmmakers and proper historians to really go away and put together and make a film about it because it could be a, a big Hollywood blockbuster, you never know. Fingers crossed. And I guess the problem is it's an orphan story because Iran in the theocracy, they, they're not interested in this, this apostasy. Absolutely not. Right. I had Iranians see the show and they were laughing. I said, why are you laughing? They in said, a good way. They said, we're in a good way because this is our, this is our heritage. But if you even put the show on, they wouldn't let you perform it. You. Five minutes in, they'd arrest you, they'd put you in prison, because this is not the story that we tell in, in history classes. And if we do, it's very distorted. Obviously, there was a mad group of people, and they were suppressed, they were all killed off. So that's, that's how Iranian people are growing up. I went to university, when I was at university, uh, I played for a football team called the Persian Empire. I played for the university football team, but there was a five-a-side league, and I joined up with the other Iranians, and we, we, we got to the final. And you know, there's this university, there's a, there's about 100 teams, so to get to the final, you've got to get through 16 rounds. And we got to the final, and before the final, 
I got dropped because they found out I was a Baha'i. They, they said, you're a Baha'i? I said, um, yeah. And they were like, what the hell? What? We, we know about you people. And I said, first of all, what's you people? We're all Iranians. They said, and I remember them being really upset. And then uh, before the final, they dropped me from the team because I would joined their team. They were third years and I was a fresher. And they made a decision to drop me from the team. And then they lost in the final. And I'd kind of got them to the final. I'd, I was the one scoring all the goals and everything. So I was, really, I was really shocked and surprised. And then one of them said, I really need to ask you questions about this because you look like a normal bloke. I said, I am a normal bloke. He goes, but the things we've been taught about the Baha'i faith are abnormal. I said, would you like to tell me? And he said, is it true that, it, and this is the kind of things he was taught, that like in your meetings you, you play a kind of blind man's buff game. I said, what's that? Like someone has to put on a blindfold and they walk around, they touch someone on the back. And whoever that is, even if it's your mum, you have to have sex with them there and then. I said, what are you, yeah. what is that this? That sounds totally I, believable. I said, I said that, that is, where did you hear that? Because that's what I was taught at school. I said, you were taught that at school. He goes, this is why, this is after they dropped me, because this is why we dropped you from the team. We can't, we don't want to be infected by you. And I said, how? He goes, spiritually, we'd be infected by you. It would actually, we'd probably not get our degrees. We actually made a decision. He's going to jinx it, so let's keep him out of the team. And um, years later, one of them came to my stand-up shows, and I brought him up on stage, and I said, is there something you'd like to tell me? And he said, yes, I do. And I said, I have to explain. We're in a team. I'm a Baha'i. They're Muslims. They dropped me from the team, and uh, I never got to play the final. I'm sure he wants to. He goes, yeah, we dropped you. It wasn't because you were a Baha'i. It's because you're crap. <laughs> and he got the biggest, actually, the biggest laugh I've ever had. I'm not surprised. And I was actually very upset by it, because I had no comeback to it. I said, sit down. I said, shut up and sit down. I didn't, really, I didn't really deal with it comedically. So is that because I've often, I've thought of you as a fan, as someone who's able to move, just take up, pick up these identities. I mean, I know lots of comedians try, but you are, you're, you're, I think, unique in your ability to just pick up these identities and then just put them down again. Is that a product of, of, of that life, of that journey? Yes, absolutely, because um, you have to understand at a very um, important part in my life, you know, in the Baha'i faith, we talk about this 12 to 15 is a very important, it's, it's, it's a kind of the, the age a lot of people dismiss kids, but actually where I come from and the faith I was raised with, this is the most, you're a sponge, and this is really where you form the basis of what your future life is gonna be. And for me, between 12 and 15, we had the Islamic revolution was going on on television between 78 and kind of 80, 81. And I, I took on different identities with different people at parties. I just said, my name's Chico, I'm from Italy. I just pretended I was something else. So I'd speak with a slight Italian accent. I'd had this, I had to create a whole character for myself. Yeah, we're from, uh, we're from um, Sicily and uh, my family came over, they opened up a pizza. Is yeah. that because you were... I didn't want to be Iranian. I, I, Iranian. I was hiding. Yeah. I didn't want to be... And, and it's not just me. There were a few other. I had a friend of mine called Kishan Manocha, who was uh, an Indian Baha'i. And he became, um, I think, Patrick something. He, was like, he had a very English name, and he was like a Tory support, member of the Tory party. And he became... He cr we used to create personas for ourselves in parties where people at school wouldn't see us. So he was Patrick, the member of the Tory party. I was Chico from Sicily. And, and, I, and it was a, a role I played on Saturday nights when I'd go out at parties. And people said, oh, my, you have to change your name. You have to shut up, don't you? Like, this is who I am now, okay? For the next couple of hours, don't blow my cover. So I think that's probably where I picked up acting skills. And uh, yeah, so I think it was, it was a survival thing.
it was a survival because the impact of a young boy, 13, 14, where his people are on television smacking their heads and looking like Islamic fundamentalists. This is not, an, it's not, it's not attractive for girls at the time who just thought, oh my God, are you Iranian? I said, no, 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 no I'm Italian. But it was like the worst thing. So I never had a girlfriend. I was ostracized. I, I remember really clearly in a Latin class, these girls were passing bits of paper. <laughs> like, who do you fancy? They were all bored. And I could see it. And one of them said, Ugh. and someone put, I like Ahmed. And my name was that. I was, I, I, my, literally, my heart was racing. And it wasn't the prettiest girl, but someone said, Ugh, are you mad? He's awful. And then she went, yeah, give it back. And she, put across, <laughs> she crossed it out. I, think, I was cancelled. I was cancelled straight. One girl, one ugly girl thought I was attractive, and then I was cancelled. So you spent your teenage years pretending you were other things, and now you're spending your days pretending that you're your visiting your troubadour minstrel grandfather. I am, yes. You're now acting yourself. I'm acting myself, I'm acting him, and I'm also, I'm doing 19 characters in this show. It's 19 and it's, and it's, it's not so much even, I don't think I fully uh, pull it off, it's 19 characters, and I think it might be a record. I don't know, I'm not sure, I've got to find out. But 19 specific characters, I mean, there are a few characters that come in just for like two, three seconds, and, but I've still got to make them quite distinct. Um, so yes, I'm trying to, I'm just trying to capture a, a, a period of time in one hour with 19 characters. Having, having hidden your past, you know, I'm broadcasting it in the most <laughs> unimaginably public way. Do you, I just, while I've got you, know, uh, uh, in terms of representation, and we, we joked about Gladiator when you were forced to play a kind of cliched North African slave dealer. I mean, have you experienced that in your career? I mean, if, you know, do you, do, do you, have you been pigeonholed by, by your background? Yes. And, okay. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, I used to joke about it. And when I, when I did the James, there was a James Bond film called The World Is Not Enough. And I was, I was joking around on set. They goes, are you sure you're being pigeonholed again? And I said, excuse me, I'm, I'm known as an Arab scumbag specialist, but in this film, I'm playing the second Azerbaijani oil pipe attendant. That's a major departure Amazing. for me in my career. Central Asian. <laughs> People thought I was mad. I said, like, this is huge. But actually, it was the same accent. Doing exactly the same thing. So it, I, think it was, I think there was one film where I played Picasso. Actually, I was very happy because I was 36 and I was playing Picasso, age 36. It was a film about the, uh, the Italian painter Modigliani and it was his relationship with Picasso. It was a film with Andy Garcia. Not, again, not, it wasn't released in Britain. It did very well in America. And in Europe, for some reason, it was never released in England, um, in Britain. And that was that was interesting. That was the first time somebody just trusted that I could play a, a different character. And I said, why have you chosen me? He goes, because your eyes are Picasso. And I looked at Picasso's eyes, and actually the just the eye sockets are pretty <laughs> similar. But the, I remember thinking that they said, you've got to lose weight, and you have to shave off your hair. I got some hair on my back. And I remember I did it, and I hadn't fully lost the weight and I was painting with my top off and they said put your shirt back on. <laughs> like, this is not Picasso and it's really awful. So just put your shirt back on. So I didn't fully again didn't fully capture the essence of, of Picasso, but it was nice that they trusted me with, with, with that role. Um, well I hope everyone trusts you enough to come and watch you and how do people come watch the show? I'll be at the Edinburgh Festival at the Pleasance at three fifty PM. It's exactly one hour because I know Actually, I'm trying to make it, I've got to shave two minutes off it because it's an hour, but I want to make it 58 because people want to go to another show. But it'll be there. And I, and I really hope that um, 
I, I've, I've set myself a very difficult thing to do. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get the most serious thing ever said in a play done in the most entertaining way. So there's bongos, there's dancing, there is poetry, and there's a lot of insanity. There. And I think there's some laughs in it as well. And lots of 19th century judicial murder, so fantastic. Well, also, also, you have to, not just that, but you have to suspend your imagination, because I'm playing a few English society ladies, which is a bald, as a bald Iranian man with a beard. Um, it does require a bit of imagination. Amazing. Well, I hope everyone goes and watches that. But thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review, I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there, law of the jungle out there, and I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you.